Hello, listeners. We had a beautiful day on Sunday at the Passport to Taiwan in New York City's Union Square Park. Congratulations to the Passport to Taiwan team for making the event a huge success. The park was packed and food lines were long. We were so glad to be invited to be a part of it. For us, it was a welcome change of pace. It's not often that we get to meet our listeners in person. We want to thank everyone who stopped by the Talking Taiwan podcast booth and those that tuned into our live stream on Facebook. We did have some technical issues with the sound on our live stream and a very loud generator in the booth. So thank you for bearing with us. Kaju, our sound engineer and executive producer, is optimistic that he'll be able to do some sound editing magic with the interviews we recorded that day. Some of the people that stopped by that day included Tom Fifield of the Taiwan Employment Gold Card Office, author Ed Lin, multidisciplinary artist Chin Chi Yang, singer and musician Jillie, and Christine Su of Tang, Taiwanese American Next Generation. We'll be sharing those interviews as future episodes of Talking Taiwan. We'd also like to give a huge shout out to our volunteers, Josh and Marcellus. The two of you were indispensable in helping us to get set up and breaking down at the end of the day. We really couldn't have done it without you. If you'd like to see photos of our eye-catching outdoor podcasting studio, we'll share some photos on our website and on our social media. In preparation for Passport to Taiwan, we created a selection of audio clips from some of our most notable interviews to play in our booth, and we thought we'd share them with you here. Whether you're new to Talking Taiwan or one of our loyal listeners, we hope that you enjoy it and maybe even discover an episode that interests you. We've also created a special webpage with all of the selected episodes. We'll post it in the related links section of our website for this episode. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988, and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website www.natwa.com You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is now in its 10th year of existence, but it wasn't until the pandemic hit New York and during the lockdown that Kaju and I decided to commit to producing a weekly episode of Talking Taiwan. And since then, we haven't looked back. So it only seems appropriate that we start off by sharing a clip from episode 101 with Dr. Peter Tsai, the Taiwanese-American inventor of the N95 technology, who came out of retirement to figure out how to sterilize N95 masks for reuse and to help scale up production of the masks. On the break of the pandemic, there was a huge demand of the respirators. 
and uh, the shortage, the huge shortage of the reservoirs. So uh, before we increase the production, they need to reuse the respirator. The respirator was designed to uh, for one-time use. Okay, but if there is a shortage, if they throw away the respirator, then they go to the hospital without a protection, right? So, but the hospital did not have enough respirator to supply them. So the health workers were asked to wear the same mask, you know, for a week or even two weeks. So I longest time I heard was two months, right? So they 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 found out, you know, they I invented the material. They want to know see if there is a way to sterilize the respirator. That was Dr. Peter Tsai, the Taiwanese inventor of the N95 technology used in N95 masks. Next is a clip from my interview with Charles Yu, author of the novel Interior Chinatown and winner of the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction. How would you describe your latest book, Interior Chinatown? Um, I would describe it as, well, it's the story of um, this guy, Willis Wu. He's the main character. And he, uh, Willis, um, w- when the book opens, his job is to be generic Asian man number three, which uh, slash delivery guy is kind of a all-purpose utility player. And um, I guess the easiest way to describe that is that he's kind of an actor. Um, but the role he plays is um, both an actual part in a show called Black and White. Um, and it's also... It, his identity on some level it's how he sees himself because he's internalized how people see him to such a degree that that's sort of how he thinks of himself and so the story is willis starts starting out as generic asian man dreaming of being kung fu guy which is sort of like the highest he can be it's the bamboo ceiling right that was charles Yu, winner of the 2020 national book award for fiction now let's hear lisa cheng smith founder of yunhai taiwanese pantry talk about where the idea for it came from i'm half taiwanese and my mom's from taiwan uh and uh i've been going to taiwan you know every year every other year since i was 16 basically and over time just kind of started to drift from the original things that my mom introduced me to, like Night Market and Taipei 101 and all of these things that, of course, I still love, but started to get to know a little bit more um, of the, like, less mainstream things happening there. So, in particular, getting into kind of the slow food movement there and um, discovering people who were, you know, making products right at that moment, basically, like, people my age who were doing, you know, very cool things in food. Uh but I had this hot sauce through Chili Crisp that one of my aunties gave me, actually. And he, the, the maker, uh, was a classmate of my cousin's. And mm. I would just go to Taiwan and bring cases back. We'd meet him in an alley and <laughs> pick up three or four boxes and bring them home with me. And I eventually I just thought, well, you know, maybe I should just import this because, you know, partially I'm sick of waiting until I go to Taiwan to get more. But, you know, my friends always ask me about it. Um, and kind of in addition I have a background in 
design goods, but mm-hmm. because of that, like supply chain and uh, e-commerce and retail mm-hmm. and inventory planning and et cetera. So I didn't feel like it was a total long shot to try to understand how to sell products. The food part was new. Um, so like, yeah, actually like two years ago, just about exactly two years ago, I uh, sold my first bottle, but I started just I air shipped 80 bottles over uh, and have grown from there. That was Lisa Cheng-Smith, founder of Yunhai Taiwanese Pantry. When China banned all imports of Taiwanese pineapples in 2021, Yunhai launched a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds to produce dried pineapple in order to create demand for and access to the Taiwanese fruit in the U.S. And in March, when President Tsai Ing-wen was in New York, she stopped by Yunhai Gamadem in Brooklyn. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Since March of this year, we've been publishing new episodes of Talking Taiwan on a weekly basis. So for our last episode of 2020, we thought it would be fun to look back and see which were the top five episodes of the year. We start off with number five on our list of top Talking Taiwan episodes of 2020, episode 68, Ebola Outbreak with Dr. Wilson Wong, who talks about how he had to quickly become an expert on Ebola during the height of the deadly pandemic. So I worked hard to learn, learned from the CDC. I went to Alabama and I learned uh, from a course on first responders, what to expect, how the virus works, essentially how to protect uh, myself, mm-hmm. my staff, mm-hmm. in terms of using personal protective gear. Right. I talked to people in the IRC, our emergency response team. Mm-hmm. They were on the ground very right. quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they advertised within the 72 hours. Right. They weren't necessarily setting up a hospital, but they were setting up the conditions that mm-hmm. allowed for a hospital to be mm-hmm. to be set up. And mm-hmm. so I learned from the people on the ground uh, the numbers, right. uh, what this was looking like on the street, what were the realities, and then. After learning, again, it's not that difficult. You need to, when you create a healthcare response, you need staff. You need medicines. Mm -hmm. You need equipment. Mm -hmm. You need a structure. Mm -hmm. You need water and sanitation. Mm -hmm. You need food. Um, So we just sort of went down the checklist. One thing that was really great about me having worked for the IRC before Mm -hmm. is that I knew a lot of I not only knew the context, but I knew a lot of great individuals that I knew could serve in the roles necessary for a well-functioning Ebola treatment unit. For example, the head of our uh, Ebola treatment unit in Monrovia, his name is Jude Sinkungu, and he was my wonderful uh, medical director at Redemption Hospital, the famous Redemption Hospital in Monrovia, and I knew that he was home. Yeah. He was home instantly because he was his roommate died of Ebola, oh, and he yeah. had to uh, not only be quarantined, but then oh, wow. because he has family in Uganda, oh, wow. he went home essentially both to mourn and to rest. Oh, yeah. Well, I gave him a call. The same thing for the medical director. Next is number four on our list of our top Talking Taiwan episodes of 2020. In episode 88, Being Black in Taiwan and Racism in the United States, we hear from Elizabeth and Alyssa, two black women from the States, who talk about their experience living in Taiwan and the racism they encountered in Taiwan and how it was different from what they experienced in the U.S. Actually, Alyssa was with me. We were walking home from a club 
and there were Alyssa and I were like two black people, black friends in our group, and we had a lot of white guy friends and friends from other countries, and we had a super international group of friends. And we're walking down the street. It was late at night. We're coming from a club, and this group of Taiwanese people saw me. And one of them was drunk, and he pointed, and he started saying, Olang, Olang, Olang. So I didn't know any Taiwanese words at that time. For some reason, maybe because I had been drinking, I thought that he was speaking Spanish. So I said, Hola, como estas? Then his friends jumped around, and they were saying, oh, you know, he didn't mean anything by it. They realized I didn't understand what he was saying. Then I was like, oh he's referring to me as a black person and he started and he was laughing when he said hola hola so then it became a little bit tense um so yeah that was my kind of most tense <laughs> um story with with racism but even then like i still never felt like it came from a place of hatred more of curiosity or ignorance anything that i heard that was negative i mean i definitely knew that black teachers had a hard time in taiwan because they you know Taiwanese families prefer to have white teachers, even if the teachers are not native English speakers sometimes. Um, but yeah, my, I, I tried to use any experience I had to educate people if they were directly talking to me. Um, but I never took it personally, like they hate me because I'm black, which is something that I, that happens here in America. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Alyssa, I know you have a lot to say on this. <laughs> Oh, um, I, I would definitely have to uh, mimic Liz in saying yeah, that it is necessary to define what is racism in Taiwan, because I think it, it definitely is very different from when we say someone is being racist in the U.S. Some of the statements, comments, actions that happen to me in Taiwan, in the U.S., they will be racist. In Taiwan, someone was simply ignorant of the fact, and they did, culturally they didn't understand that walking up to me and pulling my hair going, oh my God, gender, like really? Like, is this real hair? That this, I need a tofa, gender, like it, that them saying, is your hair real? And actually not even knowing that I understood what they were saying, that this was simply a curiosity versus if a non-black person in the U.S. walk up to me and grab my hair, we have a whole situation to deal with. Number three of our top Talking Taiwan episodes of 2020 is episode 89, Quarantine in Taiwan. Here, Diana Lee and J.D. Chang each speak separately about their own distinct experiences going through the strict procedures of Taiwan's COVID-19 quarantine when entering the country after landing at the airport. Once we landed in Taiwan, they have all the information ready and they text me on my phone because I, I have a Taiwan phone. They text me right away to confirm if those information is exactly correct. Mm -hmm. Then I enter my passport number, so I receive a barcode. So the barcode is served as a confirmation for me to exit at the airport. As you just heard Diana say, one of the most important things about this whole procedure is to have a Taiwan cell phone and number. But what happens if you don't? Back to JD. So get on the plane. plane was fine. Um, every, you know, people are wearing masks. Everybody's wearing masks. Some people are wearing ponchos, etc. It was fine. Uh, they give you your meals in a sack now, plastic sack. No more trays. So it's like plastic goodie sack full of bread and drink. Uh, get off the plane. And you go in through immigration. And this is where, this is the one thing that I did not do correctly. 
but when you enter, I mentioned that form that you have to fill out going into Taiwan. They ask you for a Taiwanese phone number, uh, and then they tell you in advance. They, they say, when you land, you're going to be texted a mobile certification code uh, to that phone number. I have a U.S. phone that is not unlocked yet. So I, it was dumb. So this is the one thing that I would caution. I did not have a Taiwan phone with me. So what I did was I got my mom's uh, SIM card, Taiwanese SIM card, and I was thinking when I land, I could either put it in my phone, which did not work, uh, or go get like a Taiwanese phone from one of the vendors, right? And I actually asked the hotel, I was like, can I, uh, how do I get a phone? And I, you can get it at the hotel. I land and uh, everybody is going through immigration. The people that had done this prepped already flew through. So they opened up their phone, got the text, pressed the button, approved it, and then, and then off they were into customs, right? I was not. Like, I was like, oh, F, like, my SIM card doesn't work, etc. That cost me, like, an hour, hour and a half, because I, I couldn't go and get a phone. We're getting closer to the number one Talking Taiwan episode of 2020. Back in May, I had a fun and spirited conversation with comedian Christina Wong and filmmaker Valerie So, which would become our number two top Talking Taiwan episode of 2020, episode 75 anti-sewing squad combats COVID-19 one mask at a time. Christina, who still leads this amazing group of volunteers who have sewn and distributed hundreds of thousands of masks, talked about why she jokes that running the anti-sewing squad is akin to being a sweatshop overlord. By the way, we invited Christina and Valerie back to give us an update on what the anti-sewing squad has accomplished in episode 107, and the list is impressive. I actually didn't wear a mask in February because I was trying to protect myself. Not from the virus, but from being a target of harassment and assault. You know, see, it doesn't matter if I'm third generation Chinese American. It doesn't matter that this virus was caused by a bat and doesn't have a nationality. This is a mask that I cannot take off. It already tells people that maybe I'm an immigrant, that maybe I don't speak English, that maybe I'm just visiting from this monolith that is Asia, that maybe I'm the one who just got off the airplane and brought the virus here as my deep conspiracy to bring this virus here. And it's being performed on Zoom and it's sort of like a real life diary um, enacted in my bedroom. Um, of, of what the last few weeks have been like to go from basically making a few masks to like trying to figure out how to send a, a caravan of, of fabric to the Navajo Nation and other and, and get things across the border to migrants stuck at the border. So um can talk more about that, but yeah. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> who, who I am, who I was, I have no idea, but this is what I know <laughs> I'm doing right now. I'm running a sweatshop. And Valerie, the award-winning filmmaker who's in it. What came up? Valerie actually brought it up and Valerie won't say who, but made it into my show. But like, I guess someone had an issue with the schedule use of the word sweatshop. It <laughs> was thrown around. I call it a sweatshop because I'm exhausted. Um, at least the, the, the way I'm experiencing the workload from this point of view is like the first few weeks, it was like 80 hours a week. Could wow. be really sleep, constantly wow. running in and out of my house with yeah. fistfuls of elastic, right. <laughs> exhausted, hungry, you know, um, and this, none of this is necessary. Like I should not be looking 
at my wondering what I should sacrifice so the <laughs> nurse doesn't die, you know? Oh my, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, someone had an issue with that and this discussion came up and some folks were like, were not into that term because if they felt like it diminishes the real experiences of, of sweatshop workers, both in America and overseas. Um, and, and that unlike them, we have the choice to pee. We have the privilege of this time to do this. Uh, but for me, I feel like I use this term because I don't want to romanticize this as volunteer work. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like, well, we just, we just do this. Like this, this situation is so crazy that we've been put on, and it's criminal neglect on the part of the federal government. And, uh, and this, this, this level of like, we're, if we are this prosperous nation, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> why don't we have access to these basic things? Why five weeks later are the factories not so ever, like, why are they all back ordered? It actually is a matter of, it's a matter of life and death. Okay, now it's that time. We've reached our number one Talking Taiwan episode of 2020. Drum roll, please. Our number one Talking Taiwan episode of 2020 is episode 97, Understanding the History of Taiwan through Dr. Jerome Keating. It's no wonder that this is the highest downloaded episode. Within this short segment, Dr. Keating, who has published several books on Taiwan, gave us an in-depth history lesson about Taiwan and explained how, to this day, Taiwan is still not recognized by the U.S. as its own nation. I've always been interested in the struggle of a people for democracy, to have their own self-expression, to express their own identity, and Taiwan's story is definitely that, and it's a long struggle when you look at it. The fact that the people had to overcome their different separate factions. When you look at Taiwan's history, I kind of would divide pre-1945, or let's go back to 1895 when the Japanese came in. Mm -hmm. And there were four basic groups here. There were two Hoklo groups, which were came from Fujian province, and then there were the Hakka, and then there were the indigenous people. And all these four groups were traditionally competing with each other for land and different things. They also trade and sometimes intermarried, but they often fought with each other and It was only when Japan came in 1895, and I'll make the point that, you know, Japan was the first nation to control the whole island of Taiwan. All the previous colonial past had been small sections on the west coast, but Japan controlled it, and the four groups then began to realize you know, hey, we've got a common enemy. You know, we mm-hmm. we better unite if we're going to survive. Because the Qing had been usually able to play one group against the other when there was a rebellion. Mm-hmm. But the Japanese just took over the whole place. So they didn't need, in a way, one group against the other. I mean, though they did use it sometimes in the past with uh, sympathizers. And then, of course, the irony after World War II, when Japan 
of which Taiwan was their model colony, gives up Taiwan in the San Francisco Peace Treaty, but the treaty never says who Japan gives it to, and it has been in that limbo ever since. Right. Even the U.S., you know, and I get to this in later writings, we are 75 years after the end of World War One, and the U.S. official position on Taiwan is still, it is undecided. The, uh, uh, 75 years, that's a long, long time. I've really enjoyed hearing from listeners who've reached out to tell me how much they've enjoyed listening to Talking Taiwan. Thanks for all the positive feedback. We look forward to continuing to deliver new episodes about interesting people and stories connected to Taiwan. For links to the top five episodes of 2020, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to tell a friend about Talking Taiwan or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Wishing you a wonderful rest of 2020. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. When my friend Alex offhandedly suggested that I interview NASA scientist and Mars rover driver Dr. Zheng Yen, I had no idea how I'd get in touch with him. I started off with the most obvious of places by reaching out to someone who I knew who had a relative that worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, also known as JPL. But that didn't work out, so I had to figure out a way to reach him by myself. And I did. Was it always a dream of yours to work in space exploration or aeronautics? Well, my story is this. So in 1997, I was in Minnesota. It's very cold, right? Mm -hmm. At that time, there was a bare, bare minimum internet, the internet <laughs> browser called uh, Nascape. Right. So during the winter time, actually, I was watching the 1997 NASA have this experiment, mm -hmm. uh, just like, you know, this mission, we have an experiment, a helicopter. So at that experiment, there's a small vehicle, rover called Sojourner. So I was like totally, you know, <laughs> inspired by that. that. That was my inspiration to come to JPL. That was Dr. Zheng Yen, NASA scientist and Mars rover driver. Next is a clip from my interview with Dr. Mark Chen, who talked about how he testified in front of the U.S. Congress as the Taiwan Relations Act was being drafted. He also talked about the advocacy work for Taiwan that led to the formation of FAPA, the Formosan Association for Public Affairs, in 1982. And uh, back in 1979, Taiwan's uh, official relationship was cut off and the U.S. switched off the recognitions from Taiwan to mm -hmm. mainland China. Yes. So that was a kind of worry from yes. our point of view. So we were doing all we can try to uh, to inform the U.S. congressmen uh, and uh, some related officials 
about the nature of the development, hopefully Taiwan cannot be ignored because uh, during that time, uh, as you may understand it, uh, they called uh, People's Republic of China, they call the uh, Red China, they call Taiwan uh, under Chiang Kai-shek, they call the Free China. But uh, I, I myself, we went to Congress and uh, tell them that uh, Taiwan is neither free nor China. That was Dr. Mark Chen talking about his advocacy work for Taiwan in the U.S. and the formation of FAPA, the Formosan Association for Public Affairs. In 2014, I happened to be in Taiwan when students and activists broke into Taiwan's legislative yuan to block passage of a trade pact with China. It was the start of the Sunflower Movement. And in this clip, Eric Chang describes the situation on the ground with crowds of people gathered outside of the legislative yuan while it was occupied by students and activists. There was like a huge station for all the drinks, all the food that everyone bought. They also had a huge tent for all the blankets and everything, all the sleeping bags. I even saw a charging station they have set up for your cell phone. Wow. They have an outdoor charging station that, you know, for literally any type of cell phone you have, wow. they have a charger there. And wow. you can go and charge your phone there. The cycling stations set up where they were separating the garbage. Because here in Taiwan, you can actually separate food scraps, all types of stuff. Mm-hmm. These students had multiple recycling stations I saw set up throughout, you know, the entire protest area around the legislative area doing recycling. They also had, what else did they have? They had the medical team set up everywhere. And information booths set up. They had crowd control. They had, this is better than the legislative yuan. <laughs> They're more organized than the legislators. I've been thinking about this. I really almost want to make a video that, you know, it's been almost two weeks now since the legislature have done any type of work and <laughs> Taiwan hasn't noticed has there been a difference why right. don't we just let these students take over and care more on the ball than any of the legislators are. that was Eric Chang talking about the unfolding situation during the sunflower movement in 2014 when students and activists ended up occupying Taiwan's legislative yuan for 23 days you're listening to talking Taiwan with your host Felicia Lin It's that time of the year again. Time to reveal the top five Talk in Taiwan episodes of the year. As we were preparing for this last episode of the year, I reflected on this past year and I realized that there is a lot to be grateful for. Talking Taiwan has had three different sponsors throughout the year. The Taiwan Elite Alliance, the Taiwanese United Fund, and NADOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. We are grateful for our many individual donors and the generosity of Guy Gilchrist, who donated 10 of his drawings that helped raise money for Talking Taiwan. And we're also grateful to all of our amazing guests and want to thank each and every one of you for being a part of the Talking Taiwan podcast. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988. And its mission is, one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. Two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. Three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. Four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. Five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NADOA, 
visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now, on to the top five Talking Taiwan episodes of 2022. Let's start with number five, episode 169, Michael Cannings of Camphor Press. Publisher rescues notable books about Taiwan and East Asia. Michael Canning spoke with me about what motivated him and his partners to start Camphor Press and what has kept him going through the challenging early years to present. First of all, I approached John about republishing Foremost and Odyssey as an ebook. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, it was very hard to find copies. Um, and as it's the, the best modern Taiwan travel log, Mm-hmm. I thought it should be available to a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a some idea of how to do ebooks and how to publish them and so on. Um, but I was by no means uh, an expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was John who then suggested that we broaden out and publish more ebooks. Um, and that kind of became the genesis of Camphor Press rather than it being a one off thing of redoing uh, Formosa and Odyssey. On to number four of our top five. Episode 166, Bilingual Podcast and Discrimination that Oversees Taiwanese Experience in Taiwan, Talking with Cindy Wu. And it was, it, it was just, it was crazy. And then so I dig deeper. Yes. I dig deeper. Yes. And for me, um, I felt with their intelligence and their, uh, and their popularity and clout, for me, and that's yeah. going to that's gonna come out as me, someone like older speaking here, mm-hmm. is that I thought that with their intelligence, they could handle it better. And when I say handle it better, it means they're both very smart people. They're very smart. Um, I have a lot of respect for those two because I watch other episodes that they've done. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. If, 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 if you didn't go, if you didn't, go in and explore more of their other episodes and also intensely being their fans or viewers, you would definitely target them as racist as well. Just, you know, obviously yeah. for, for the comments that they those made. Comments, yeah. This episode definitely stirred up a lot of people's opinions. It was Cindy's second time as a guest on Talking Taiwan. The first episode featuring Cindy was episode 165, Cindy Wu, music educator in Taiwan, speaks about her music career and positivity. Number three of our top five is episode 178, Taiwan's Civil Defense Preparedness, THC on how to prepare for the threat of an attack. The war in Ukraine has put the people of Taiwan on alert about the threat that it also faces from an unfriendly neighbor. As a result, there's been an increased interest in civil defense in Taiwan. This led me to track down THC, who I ended up connecting with via Twitter. With the term civil defense, I, I bumped into se- several you know, people and they, ha- they all had different imagination or expectation of the term. For example, for those people who've lived through Cold War era, it's like uh, going down to the bomb shelters and try to, when you hear the air raid siren alarms, right? So they kind of like, you know, you have to evacuate yourself and, and try to find a, a safe ground to hide. So for a lot of people, that's, that's their imagination or expectation of civil defense. For younger people here, all right, they might think that, oh, civil defense is about picking up a gun or involved in a combat role, combative role. 
So you might be like part of like the National Guard of the U.S. Uh, that, that 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 bit of imagination. Uh, but for for the government, it's like you know the civil defense always falls in with the. Uh, it, it, of course, it's it's not done by the military, right? The military is the official, you know, a defense force. But those people on the ground, when they are facing an attack from an enemy or an an adversary, like things happening right here in in Russia, they probably uh, had some training and programs which could deter the 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 army or some of the attack force on the ground, and they need to have some trainings. Uh, uh, when the war, you know, wasn't there, yeah, before, yeah. So that's a general mm-hmm. idea of civil defense. It could involve some, you know, fighting cap- capabilities, but mostly it's about, uh, you know, deterrence and resistance. And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to announce that I recently interviewed Robert Tao, founder of UNC, who's been making lots of news headlines. In August, he pledged to donate 100 million US dollars to help Taiwan defend itself. If you'd like exclusive first listening access to my interview with Mr. Tao, simply make a donation of $25 or more to Talking Taiwan at talkingtaiwan.com forward slash support. All of our donors, past, present, and future, will also get first listening access to my interviews with Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who has been inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame, and Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. We'd also like to congratulate all the winners of the artwork from our event, A Night with Master Cartoonist Guy Gilchrist. If you missed the event, you can still experience Guy's artistry by watching the recorded replay of Talking Taiwan's YouTube channel or listen to highlights from the event in episode 214. We are so grateful for all of your support and our growing listenership. Now, back to the episode. We're past the halfway point now. The episode in the number two spot is one that I felt was hugely significant because this year marked 75 years since the 228 massacre. In the number two spot is episode 171, the 228 massacre, taboos, scars, stigmas, and an essential lesson in Taiwan history. On the night of February 27th, Tobacco Monopoly Bureau agents tried to confiscate contraband cigarettes from a 40-year-old woman and brutally knocked her out. When an angry crowd gathered in protest, one of the agents fired a shot into the crowd, killing a bystander. Within 24 hours, the incident had escalated into bloody violence and massacres. Under the authoritarian Chiang regime, what followed was 38 years of martial law and white terror era. Anyone could be disappeared, executed, or worse, for just saying or doing the wrong thing, or for what was seemingly wrong in the eyes of authorities. The people of Taiwan were horrified and terrified. Generations dared not speak of 228. 228 was absent from high school textbooks until relatively recently. Denial, distrust, suppression, and the passage of time have made it hard for many to come to terms with 228. All right, 
Are you ready for the number one episode of Talking Taiwan for 2022? Drum roll, please. Our number one Talking Taiwan episode for 2022 is episode 175. Will China attack Taiwan? Quantin Chen discusses ramifications of the war in Ukraine on Taiwan. The Western society or uh, if the, the alliance of democracy already stated they will impose sanctions on China if they should attack Taiwan. This could even deter uh, China from taking any uh, aggressive measurements against Taiwan. So deterrence uh, will be a key word. And I think uh, what happened uh, in Ukraine uh, could deter China from uh, taking Taiwan at this time. Quanting shared his thoughts on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the comparisons being made between Ukraine and Taiwan, and whether or not he thought China would attack Taiwan. And here we are, 10 months later, and Ukraine is still under attack. Our New Year's wish is for there to be more peace, love, and happiness in the world. Talking Taiwan is about the interesting people and stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. We're really excited about the guests we've lined up to interview and topics to cover. We look forward to continuing to break new ground in the new year. For links to the top five episodes of 2022, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. Wishing you a wonderful rest of 2022 and a happy new year. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. In May of 2022, I spoke with Karen Lin, who at the time was running as a Democratic candidate for the civil court judge in Queens, New York. I remember uh, thinking that, you know, maybe law is something that 
could be useful because growing up in Queens in the 70s and 80s, there there were no Asian American lawyers that I knew, and certainly no women um, Asian American lawyers. And so I thought, oh, maybe this is an area that could use some somebody. Um, but uh, you know that that was sort of as far as I uh, I thought it would go, and being a, a child of immigrant parents, you learn very quickly to speak on behalf of someone else um, because we were, you know, always the translators, always the interpreters, um, always the ones who kind of give voice to our parents um, in the mainstream culture. Right. Well, that's true. I could see how that would put you in the position of being an advocate, a sort of in a sort of way at an early age. That was Karen Lynn, who was elected as judge of the civil court in Queens, New York. Next, we'll hear from Richard Pearson, the executive director of the Western Pacific Fellowship Project, explaining what the Taiwan Fellowship Act is. So the Taiwan Fellowship Act would create uh, what we're calling the Taiwan Fellowship Program. And what that would be is a government-to-government fellowship program between the United States and Taiwan. It would provide a congressionally created and congressionally sanctioned way for U.S. government officials, roughly 10 per year, to take two years away from their normal duties and spend one year in Taiwan studying Mandarin Chinese full-time in a full-immersion intensive environment and their second year working as fellows placed inside offices in Taiwan, including Taiwan government offices, companies, uh, and nonprofit organizations. So it's really a very practical way of not only strengthening the working level bonds between government officials in the U.S. and Taiwan, but also in training America's next generation of East Asia and Chinese language experts, the people who are going to, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, really guide and staff the relationships between the United States and not only Taiwan, but other countries of East Asia, especially, of course, China. It's not um, a new concept. It's based on a very successful concept that's been uh, tried with Japan. That was Richard Pearson, the executive director of the Western Pacific Fellowship Project, talking about the Taiwan Fellowship Act. It's always great to bring back past guests onto Talking Taiwan. I first met this next guest, Yao Huang, in 2013, when she was involved in the Entrepreneur Challenge and Competition, which was organized by the Taiwanese American Professionals New York Chapter and the Taiwan Merchants Association. Currently, Yao is funding minority-owned businesses to solve the financial inequality problem. I understand that from this Wonder Woman dinner series that this also sprung something called the Diana yeah, Capital. That's rolled up to uh, Division One Capital now, and it's a $100 million fund supporting mm-hmm. women and minorities, uh, opening up capital to a number of cities. Um, I believe that there's more than just one way to give money to small businesses and new endeavors. It doesn't have to always be venture capital. In fact, that only helps about 2% of companies and maybe even less. So the majority don't fit that model and really just need, um, dare I say, unracist capital. 
right? So if you go to the bank and you don't look the way they want you to look, you don't get money or they give you higher interest. Um, we're creating the first um, you know, algorithm to lend that is unbiased. And we will lend against your ability to sell. That was Yao Huang, founder and managing partner of The Hatchery. She's solving the problem of financial inequality through a $100 million fund for minority-owned, small-to-medium-sized businesses. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. We have some exciting news. On December 21st, Talking Taiwan won a Golden Crane Podcast Award. We are so honored to have been recognized for our work and to have been nominated alongside so many other amazing podcasts. Now it's our turn to recognize all of our wonderful guests who make what we do possible. This award is also for you. I'm looking forward to revealing the top five Talking Taiwan episodes for 2021. Let's start with number five, episode 127, Eric Chang on China's breach of Taiwan's air defense identification zone, threat or bluff. The incursion of 25 Chinese aircraft into Taiwan's air defense identification zone on April 12th of this year was such a cause for concern at the time that we decided to do an episode on the incident. Traditionally, the, what China used to do is they would send planes to circumnavigate Taiwan, mm-hmm. right? So they would, you know, maybe fly north of Taiwan, you know, flying through uh, the Diaoyutai Islands, mm-hmm. you know, flying through Japan's mm-hmm. ADIZ, mm-hmm. and then they would circle around, you know, or, the, or they would go south and, you know, mm-hmm. circle north. Mm-hmm. Um, traditionally, that was how the, the PLA, uh, People's Liberation Army, this is China's army, um, would harass Taiwan. And mm-hmm. it, they didn't used to do ADIZ uh, intrusions very much. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan also previously didn't make these public because they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to uh, put undue fear onto Taiwanese citizens. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want to, you know, because part of the reason China does this, obviously, is, you know, mental, psychological, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, psychological threats, right? You're mm-hmm. trying to just wear down Taiwanese people mm-hmm. um, politically mm-hmm. and, you know, through these types of actions. But then recently, you know, uh, last year, you know, they really ramped up their intrusions. So these basically coincided with uh, Trump sending, I guess we can say it first started when Trump sent the health health czar, mm-hmm. Alex Azar, mm-hmm. out here. Alex Azar was the highest ranking cabinet level official to visit Taiwan um, since diplomatic relations were severed in 1979. After that happened, they started, they sent a lot of planes over. Eric talked about the strategy and motivation behind China's incursion into Taiwan's ADIZ and mentioned that Taiwan's National Ministry of Defense published real-time updates of military activity around its borders. Here's an important update since the alarming incursion of 25 Chinese aircraft in April. In October, China broke that record by sending double the number of aircraft, 56 to be precise, into Taiwan's ADIZ. On to number four of our top five, episode 145, The Golden Age of Taiwan Studies, our interview with University of London's Dr. David Feld. We're in a golden age of Taiwan studies mm-hmm. uh, because of the way the, the field is developing. We also have, now have an international journal of Taiwan studies that one of my friends is editing, and I'm, I help a little bit on that uh, journal. And of course, we've run the three world congresses of Taiwan studies, with two held in Taiwan 
and, and one held uh, in London. So I think there have never been so many active Taiwan centres in Europe. If you could think about it, there was nothing when I came back in 1999. Now we have something like 12 or 13 active programmes. Uh, of course, some programmes will come and go. So, for example, programmes at Oxford and Cambridge have appeared and then disappeared. Uh, some, uh, like Bochum, emerged, went quiet, and now are active again. So um, I would say it's it's a great time for doing Taiwan studies, particularly out in Europe. I, I'm really quite excited about the state of the field. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as I was thinking about before we had this interview, I recall um, one of my friends who I won't mention where she graduated from, but she did some kind of dissertation related to Taiwan probably about 20 years ago or so. And she had a really hard time with her advisor because her advisor really didn't understand Taiwan because at the university she went to, typically there isn't like a Taiwan studies or a Taiwan specialist. Uh, A lot of the advisors or um, academics will be more China focused. So it was interesting for me to reflect on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's often a challenge. I think that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of American scholars quite enjoy coming over to Europe. That kind of sense of community that we've been able to build up over the last couple of decades, I think is really quite exciting. Maybe because Taiwan studies in Europe is a little bit newer than the US. So it's been maybe easier for us to kind of concentrate us and bring us all together. While in the US, you kind of have a longer history of Taiwan studies. I mean, um, I think there's still, I'm still very excited about Taiwan studies in the U.S., and I think maybe we can touch upon that a little bit later. This was a fascinating episode that delved into the field of Taiwan studies and how it's changed in the last 20 years. I also interviewed Dr. David Feld about his book, Taiwan's Green Parties and Alternative Politics in Taiwan, in episode 144. Number three of our top five is episode 156, Remembering Su Bing. Taiwanese Revolutionary with Jio Chang. Jio talked about how he first met Su Bing in 2005. It was not that long after China had passed the anti-secession law, which was a legal threat if Taiwan were to declare independence. The law basically stated that the PRC would use non-peaceful means to stop Taiwan's secession from China. In protest, Su Bing began a sit-in at the front entrance of the National Taiwan University. 2004, 2005, I think. Yeah, this was 2005, anti-secessional. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Subing, or Ji Sang, he was, he was, he was, uh, he he sort of started this sitting in front of the University of Taiwan University, uh, University of Taiwan, <laughs> Taiwan University, National yeah, Taiwan National University. National Taiwan yeah, University yeah. So, in yeah, Taipei. So so, so yeah, so uh, he started this sitting in front of the campus. I think for the re- for for the very reason he, he wanted to sort of get a new audience as well, like he wanted to uh, you know appeal to the younger generation of which is why I picked the university. Students. Yes, mm-hmm. so so and and there I was I I was studying in, at the at the that school at the time, so I saw him, mm-hmm. and I remember it was uh, one night at. About seven eight p.m., mm-hmm. I was I, I just finished I just I just finished uh, my dinner. I was going back to my dorm, and I was riding my uh, motorcycle. I just passed mm-hmm. by him. He was sitting on the side of the road yeah. with all this uh, other uh, uh, very hot-blooded, uh, you know, uh, people, <laughs> and I thought. Okay, I could 
pretend that I I am not seeing this and just go back to my dorm and prepare for my class for tomorrow and right. not think about it, or I could stop and join them. And then I ask myself, well, would I still be thinking about this if I just go back to my dorm now? And can I? Could I? Could I just not care about this? Could I just yeah. not, you know, not yeah. not bother myself with it after mm-hmm. I just I, after I dish all this and go back? Su Bing was eighty-six years old at the time, and Gio reflected on his impression of Su Bing at the time. So seven a.m. to like twelve p.m. Right. That's seventeen right. hours a day. Right. right. He only got up to uh, for bathrooms yeah. and for lunch and dinner. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. He will be sitting yeah. there like a like a Buddha. Okay. <laughs> so, so two things. One, I remember one day it was 11 p.m., 11:50 some p.m., like 58, or 57 mm-hmm. or something, and Very and everybody everybody was already packing. Nobody was around, and we were ready to go. And and he was still sitting there, and I was asking Ming Hong, the, his his assist,、uh, assistant secretary. I asked her, "What is his? What is he still doing?" And she said, "Well, there's still one minute. You know, there's still one minute he,、uh, until until twelve, right? So,、yeah. and he wouldn't get up until twelve, until <laughs> midnight. That's how sort of punctual this this、dedicated. man was,、yeah. right? He's very dedicated and sort of very highly self-disciplined." There were many lighter moments during this episode with Gio. This episode is definitely worth a listen for those interested in learning more about the personal side of Subing. And now for a short break. Breaking news: We're proud to say that Talking Taiwan is now a 2021 Golden Crane Award-winning podcast. Talking Taiwan is a Golden Crane Award-winning podcast and the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast. We are dedicated to bringing you stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. Help us to grow and continue producing engaging content by making a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com/talkingtaiwan. We're past the halfway point now. The episode in the number two spot is definitely a winner. It secured Talking Taiwan the Golden Crane Podcast Award. Special thanks to Michael Turton, our guest in episode 138, Biking in Taiwan with blogger Michael Turton. I was 45 when I started biking, so、mm-hmm. I will always be stocky, Sally.、Mm-hmm. And over the years,、uh, people would read my blog and they'd say, "Hey, I want to go on a bike ride with you." And I gathered all these interesting people who took me to all sorts of fantastic places and knew amazing things about Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So, I'm, for example, I'm biking with Drew Kerslake, and Drew wrote Andrew Kerslake, who's also a long-term resident, and he's his sort of hobby slash professional interest is Taiwan Aborigines,、mm-hmm. and he wrote the award-winning wiki page on the Taiwan Aborigines, and he follows all of the scholarly stuff, and、mm-hmm. uh, you know, we would go biking, and then. I remember the first or second time I was biking with him, we crawling up this hill in Miaoli, and he stops and starts reading the bike stop signs. I'm like, "What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing that?" And he says, "Well, a lot of times the you know the KMT overlaid this area with a with a with you know KMT names, right?、Mm-hmm. 
but the old but the bus stop signs preserve the old names for the local oh, areas. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and a lot of those old names have Aboriginal roots, right? Oh. And that's part of, and so that's one of the things that Drew would teach me as we drove around. Hey, see mm-hmm. that sign? Joshia, old town, right? Mm-hmm. Old city, old mm-hmm. village. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, yeah, that used to be the old, the site of an Aboriginal village. Thank you for sharing your wonderful storytelling with us, Michael. All right, are you ready for the number one episode of Talking Taiwan for 2021? Drum roll, please. Our number one Talking Taiwan episode of 2021 is episode 149. Jio Chang, city councilman, talks about his career in Taiwan politics. Jio shared how he immigrated to Canada in 1994 and how the 1995-96 missile crisis in the Taiwan Strait, which happened around the time of Taiwan's first direct presidential election, got him thinking about Taiwan's situation. And 10 years later, he chose to move back to Taiwan. By 2015, I was already uh, working as a speechwriter for the okay. president's uh, running, uh, for the presidential candidate, Tsai Ing-wen, oh. who was oh, running okay. for the president. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 16 and 17, I was I was uh, working in the presidential office mm-hmm. as one of the speechwriters, uh, the speechwriting mm-hmm. team. And after that, I resigned uh, from my post as a speechwriter, yeah. and I came back to Keelong and ran mm-hmm. for the city council election. In uh, 2018, I was elected. So this is my current position right now. I'm right. a city councilor for the mm-hmm. uh, for the Keelong city, which, by the way. Uh, is one of the smaller cities. So mm. uh, uh, in Taiwan municipal governance, there are the six big cities, Taipei, Kaohsiung, you know, New Taipei City, and Tongcheong. Those are like big cities with yes. large budgets. Uh, yeah. But my city, Keelong, is the smaller ones. Smaller okay. ones means smaller budget, smaller everything, much lower salary, and, oh. and, and all that. We are, by the way, we, we, I'm, we're calling from a, a basement. Uh, oh, of, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm working in a basement office. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. The, good thing we still have a window that has sun that comes in. So, yeah. Right. What was it like to get elected? What is it like campaigning for your position? Uh, what was it like? It was, it was, it was tough, very tough. Gio talked about the nature of his work and the demands it put upon him. You have to be everywhere. Like for a city councilor, they expect anyone with a public office. They want you to be very close to the people. So you have to be everywhere. Like for an average day, you will be out in the sun, in the, in the temples, in, in, the, in the mountains, in the markets, like all oh. the time. They want you. They need you to be there. They want you to be there. If you are not there, then you are too proud. Wow. They, yeah. That, that's so you really them. need to be on the ground. You have to. Yeah. yeah like all the time, you have to be on the ground, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and also that can compromise your capacity to uh, to think. It's very demanding. Yeah. It's when it's physically demanding. Yes. It's also mentally demanding. Yes. So yeah. political campaigning is, is very much physical. Wow. You know, they are out there all the time and smaller constituency like mine yeah. requires you to be even more out there. For mm. example, if you're running in a Taipei city, mm-hmm. you, you'll never see most of your voters. 
they will see you on TV, you know,、right. on, but、right. you will not see them. Well, because of the sheer numbers. Yeah, the yeah. sheer numbers, and the, the people、mm-hmm. are in the building. But in smaller constituency like mine, yeah, no, you get to see everyone, and that's a lot of people. If you, yeah, this is just you know thousands of thousands and thousands、wow. of people、wow. uh, that you see every day, and you have you have to shake their hands and spend time、yeah. and listen to、mm-hmm. them and not judging them and but but offering all that you've got to help them、yeah. through.、Mm-hmm. Most of the problems that they have, those most of the demands that they throw at me, were not really counselor-related stuff. It's just personal concerns. Anything, it it, it yeah. miscellaneous yeah. things. Yeah. Everything,、oh, wow. everything、uh, relating to the central government,、yeah. to the、yeah. municipal government, <laughs> or to any. It, it it could be a street light not working, or it could、uh-huh. be you know my、uh, my husband is running. With his girlfriend, you know, all this, all all the different things that you have yeah, to deal with, and、yeah. you take them all. You don't refuse any request. He also spoke about how the pandemic has impacted his work and what's made his work so rewarding. This episode is definitely worth a listen if you're interested in learning more about some of the smaller political parties in Taiwan and what it's like to be a local politician in Taiwan. Talking Taiwan is about the interesting people and stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. We've enjoyed producing new episodes for you every week, and it's been exciting to see our listenership grow. We look forward to breaking new ground in the new year. For links to the top five episodes of 2021, visit our website talkingtaiwan.com. Wishing you a wonderful rest of 2021 and a happy new year. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website talkingtaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com. You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host Felicia Lin. Baseball lovers will be happy to know that this year's Mets Taiwan Day is going to be on August 27th. In this clip, Diana Lee talks about the history behind Mets Taiwan Day. It's、um, Mets Taiwan Day's 17th year, so the event goes back to 2005. Back then,、uh, the Taiwanese government would like to use opportunities to support Taiwan and have people to understand and share Taiwanese heritage and culture. So Mets have this、um, uh, different culture night, and Taiwan's government decided to join Mets Taiwan Day as a way to promote Taiwan. So in 2005, during August, that would be the day that Taiwan share our heritage to everyone. That was Diana Lee, one of the founders of Hello Taiwan, talking about the history of Mets Taiwan Day, which will be held on August 27th this year. And finally. We'd like to share this clip thanking our listeners. Before we hear from Dr. Karen Tsai, co-founder of Donate PPE, that has now raised over a hundred and seventy thousand dollars to date. 
One listener who reached out said that episode 99 with Professor Scott Simon was particularly eye-opening. This led me to think about how to cover the topic of Taiwan's Indigenous people and to interview Tony Coolidge about discovering his Indigenous roots and his work with the Indigenous people of Taiwan. The two episodes I did with Tony are now amongst the most listened to. And recently, we've also gotten some wonderful anonymous reviews from listeners. Amazing podcast. Really enjoy listening to it. Love the variety of people that come on. And just a few days ago, another listener wrote, Love all the topics that has been discussed in Talking Taiwan. We are so grateful for all of this feedback. Your reviews help Talking Taiwan to get discovered. It's great to know that we have a regular listener base and that our content is resonating with you. Thank you for reaching out and letting us know how we're doing. Without further ado, I'd like to share part two of my interview with Dr. Karen Tsai about her work with Donate PPE, a nonprofit that she has co-founded and that has raised over $150,000 to date. I'd like to talk about your work with the Donate PPE as well. I understand that organization has raised over $150,000 already. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? How did you get that started and about your co-founders and team? Yeah, of course. So Donate PPE actually started mid-March. And the the reason behind why this, this started was because a lot of us, you know, including myself, um, you know, dealt with firsthand noticing the huge deficit of PPE proportional to, uh, you know, the, the stream of COVID patients literally coming into our hospital. And from my personal anecdotal experience, uh, you know, I was, I, I found it very, very challenging to have access to PPE, especially with, uh, you know, with the new, uh, you know, at the time we had really very, very, very limited knowledge of what COVID meant. You know, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our colleagues? making sure that we could take care of our patients as a priority. And so at the time, you know, we, we started noticing that a lot of our colleagues, um, especially in those hearted areas like New York City, uh, in, in the tri-state area, like in the surrounding New Jersey, Connecticut area, Long Island, mm-hmm. um, and then New Orleans, and then Seattle, Washington area as well, too. Mm-hmm. I started noticing that there was a, there, there was a lot of, you know, news and, and chatter about, you know, PPE deficits, how healthcare workers felt inadequately prepared uh, to, you know, really fight this virus um, and really take care of the patients and take care of their loved ones. Um, Because, you know, as as you know, you know, know, after work, you come back home. And Mm -hmm. so then, you know, whatever you deal with at home, sometimes you accidentally, you know, actually expose your your family members. And so we wanted to make sure that we had adequate PPB to provide uh, these frontline healthcare workers um, so that they can really take care of patients and make sure that they were they were kept safe and their families safe. I hope you enjoyed these clips from some of our most notable episodes. We'll be sharing some of the interviews done in our booth at Passport to Taiwan as future episodes. You'll be hearing from Tom Fifield of the Taiwan Employment Gold Card Office, author Ed Lin, multidisciplinary artist Chin Chi Yang, singer and musician Jillie. Christine Su of Tang, Taiwanese American Next Generation, and a few others. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988. To learn more about NATOA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. 
Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There we'll list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.